We are doing a series called The Beginning and the End. We are going to teach through the book of Genesis and lay the foundation that God has for our lives, really creating beauty from the distinction out of the chaos that now in our culture, when you abandon God, you start going back to chaos. God gives us clearly defined distinctions that everybody in our culture is kicking and screaming against primarily because they want nothing to do with God, they want nothing to do with his direction, and any way that they can insult the, basically what they believe the social constructs that are restraining them from their crazy lifestyles in a Judeo-Christian culture. So we want to go back to the beginning, look at the book of Genesis, and then the end, the book of Revelation, as the Lord wraps up the end of history. And here we are, you and me, in the middle of this dynamic of humanity and walking with the Lord. And we get to day seven. This is one of those places that they're, you know, the, the chapter and verses are not divinely inspired. The word of God is, but not the chapter breaks. This is one of those unfortunate chapter breaks because we had six days in chapter one. It should have just, hey, look, why don't we get the seventh day in chapter one? And so as we pick it up, I thought we'd slow down just for a moment because there's times back and forth through God's word. Well, I, well I'll speak to you about issues that you're going to run up against. And my job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So somebody asks you, how come you go to church on Sunday instead of Saturday? Well, they couldn't say that to you, right? Here you guys are on Saturday night. But uh, Shabbat is over, Sabbath is over as soon as the sun went down. But you'll notice here this calendar that I have as our opening picture. And this calendar is laid out in this way that is so familiar to you, right? In a seven-day week. Why does the entire globe operate on a seven-day week? Why does that happen? And why is the first day of the week, Sunday, and the last day of the week, Saturday? And as we look at the creation story and we look at the seventh day, we're going to look at God resting. And it is this experience or declaration that rest as God gives us an example, because in this passage, you're going to see God's example to rest. Then the laws demand to rest. We're going to jump over and look at the 10 commandments for a moment. And then we're going to look at Jesus's invitation to rest because the whole concept of rest, you guys, ultimately is pointing towards the one who can give your soul rest, the Lord Jesus. Some of you were really, if you worked hard this week, you were so looking forward to sleeping in this morning. You know what I mean? Thank God it's Friday. You're just like, you're so slammed. You've been working so hard. And it's just, you're just launching for that day when the alarm's not going to go back. Now, if you have young kids at home, all bets are off anyway, right? <laughs> because you want to sleep in and it's the only day you, you know, you have to drag them out of bed to go to school. But on Saturday, I don't know, they're just boom, they're up and uh, knocking on your door, jumping in bed with you at five in the morning. But the concept of rest is not only physical in nature, mental, emotional, psychological, but it has a spiritual implication. Let me just ask as we just quiet down for a moment, is your soul in total rest in your relationship with God? Are you in rest? And if not, what is the agitation? What is the aggravation? What is the, what's straining? What's kicking against that? And we're going to talk about that. And I'm going to take the time to talk about this seventh day of rest and look at these examples and really lead us into that place of a quiet rest in our relationship with Jesus that can only be discovered through faith. Hopefully you made your way to Genesis chapter 2. We pick it up in verse 1, reading verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. For the first time in all these days of creation, on this seventh day, when God finishes his work, and rest, not because he's tired. God is all-knowing, everywhere present at once, and all-powerful. He's not worn out like you and I would be. He is uh, fully contained in his power. But he's giving us an example that there's six days in which to work, and then one in which he gives us an example of creation rest. 
This is good for us. And the Lord loves these uh, components of seven, increments of seven. You look at your week and it's a a seven-day week. But he does four things in this declaration on the seventh day. First, it says God finished. He had a work to do. All the creation is designed, created, built within the first six days. And then he rests. But then he blesses this day in an unusual way. He blessed it and he sanctified it. So he finishes his work. He gets the job done. He now declares he's going to rest. And he's going to bless a special day of the week, which becomes this cultural dynamic as we get to the law for the Jewish people that continue it even to this day that sundown Friday to sundown on Saturday, they still, everywhere that they are practicing Jews, that still implement this Sabbath rest. As a matter of fact, I was a fly on a wall in a meeting yesterday with a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish couple, and another individual that were trying to figure out how the Gentile, the non-Jew, wanted to get the Jews to a location on the Sabbath, and it was quite a conundrum. Because rest, you just go in your home, You don't travel, you don't do things, depending on where your uh, level of commitment to the Sabbath is. And so listening to them dialogue about it and trying to find the loophole, how that was going to work out. It's so important to realize that God has a plan in the creation design for you to experience rest. And when you take a day in the week, just as a God's example of creation design, for me, because I work through the weekend, I work Saturday, Sunday, I work all day Saturday preparing for my messages for the weekend and then work on Sunday, and I have for 35 years. So I'm working through that period of time where people are usually taking time off. So I'm shooting, my Saturday is Monday morning. I'm going to crash and burn Monday morning. And uh, I'm going to get rejuvenated physically. And when I negate that for weeks at a time, I start kind of unraveling. I start coming apart uh, emotionally. I start getting really edgy because I just need rest. I physically need to rejuvenate. It's in the place of rest that creativity returns. And then you're just, it's this, the Lord even designs it into the land. He said, every seven years, I want the land just not to plant any crops so that field doesn't have to work. And the rejuvenation that those who are in agriculture, that takes place in that one year of rejuvenation in the soil because you can farm all the nutrients right out of the soil. And the Lord told the children of Israel to do this. And because they didn't do it for 490 years, when they went into Babylonian captivity, he sent them for 70 years because it was 70 years that they never observed that so that the land would have rest. But all those things are pointing to something greater as we want to talk about. There's a blessing in taking a day off, especially to enjoy your family, to maybe shut out some of the noise of the world and just soak up God's goodness and the goodness of those intimate relationships. But it says he sanctified it. He set it aside as a very special day, a special day. When the law comes along with the Ten Commandments and Moses receives the Ten Commandments on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, as it's also known, in Exodus chapter 20, The law demands rest. It's no longer an option. It's no longer just a a creation principle or concept. It's a demand from the law. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. He tells the children of Israel, Not only are you not going to work, but your servants, your children, the animals are going to get a break. Everybody's going to get a break on the farm. Nobody's working. And uh, this is uh, that dynamic that Chick-fil-A, you ever show up on Sunday? Right? You want to show up on, I don't know how many times over the last 20 years I've showed up at Chick-fil-A. Oh, Sunday. Because (laughs) they're... uh, 
founder, Mr. Kathy, said the whole family should have off that day. You know, nobody's working. And it was kind of a built-in concept, though it's not the Sabbath in the sense that it's not sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. But in the Judeo-Christian ethic of having Sundays off, he just gave them one day off. So the law was quite stringent. As a matter of fact, it's so stringent when Jesus shows up, he's constantly torquing off the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees for messing up the Sabbath. And his disciples are picking heads of grain and eating them. So they said they were working, they're harvesting. No, they're just having a snack. Jesus is healing people. He's like, isn't it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? He's like, how many of you, if your you know, sheep falls into a pit, it's the Sabbath, but you'll go get it out. Come on now. Because you see, as we turn from God's example of Sabbath rest, from the law's demand of Sabbath rest, we get to now Jesus' invitation for Sabbath rest of the soul. As he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, this is the concept that he's really presenting to people's soul that comes from this idea all the way back in Genesis 2 about rest. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you heavy laden? Are you burdened tonight? Are you burdened with anxiety? Are you burdened with fear? Are you burdened with stress? All those things rob you of your rest. They rob you of your peace. What other things are burdening you? And the Lord says, hey, just come to me. Come to me. I'll be your rest. I'll be your satisfaction. I'll be your protection. I'll be all that you need. When the Lord told Abraham to go deliver the children of Israel from Egypt, he described himself as I am the becoming one. Whatever you need rest in, whatever you need peace in, whatever the anxiety of your heart, the Lord says, bring that to me because I can become to you what you need. Maybe it's guilt and shame for sin and you need forgiveness. Then you come to him. It's fear about financial things. You come to him. It's rejection from some of your family and feeling alone and ostracized. You come to him. The burdens that we bring to the Lord are multifaceted. From each one of us in this room, you carry burdens and they build up. The Bible says to cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. He's thinking about what's on your heart. He knows what's going on. The psalmist declared that the Lord puts my tears in a bottle while he's at home at night crying in the dark on his bed He uses this beautiful Hebrew poetry to say the Lord was capturing each one of his tears because he sees, he knows what's going on. And so it's with this heart that Jesus invites you to come in to rest. Now in the creation story up to this point, six days, all that we can do is observe and go, wow. We can even say it backwards, wow. Right, he creates everything. And it's not till the seventh day is the only thing that we can enter into. I need some rest which is not work at all, right? I just need some rest for my own soul. So the invitation that Jesus gives, but you might think, especially for those Jews who are listening to this, who are you to uh, change the rules of the Sabbath? We, We got that from the law of Moses. Look what Jesus says about the Sabbath. In Mark 2, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus shows up and says, I want to straighten you guys out. You act like people are slaves to the Sabbath, but I'm telling you, God created the Sabbath for rest for people. You've got it reversed. And by the way, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I make all the rules about the Sabbath. (laughs) Don't you love that? I'm Lord of the Sabbath. You know, shut up, be quiet, sit in the corner, go suck your thumb, go do something else, because I'm telling you the way it's really going to be. And so Jesus constantly, authoritatively, functioned through the day of rest, doing good and being a blessing to people's lives that truly needed rest. There's this woman, she's bent over, it tells us, that she's, you know, age has done this to her. She's bent over like this. And Jesus says it has something to do with a, a demonic attack. And he touches her and he heals her and delivers her from this this. Uh, attack, oppression, possession, whatever's happening demonically, and she stands up. And she had been in that condition for 18 years, but the people were upset that he healed this woman after 18 years. Like a person could be so burdened for 18 years, and these people could care nothing about that. They didn't care about her getting rest. 
in a relationship with God. They cared about, cared about their little rules. And that people were a slave to the Sabbath. Jesus says, that's not the way I designed it. And I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath comes after work. Everybody in the new socialist, communist movie, movement should understand the beginning of Genesis. Go work six days, then you get a day off. <laughs> Rather than thinking you're entitled to everything. Even the Lord works for six days before he rests, as an example. Jesus finished his work in John 19.30. What was Jesus' work? As he's hanging on the cross to die for the sins of the world, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Jesus' work was to come, as he says in Luke 19.10. He says, the Son of Man is coming to seek to save that which is lost. I was lost. You were lost. We were without rest. We were without peace. We were out without forgiveness. We we're walk, wandering around in our own condemnation. And we're struggling with these things. And Jesus comes along and says, you know what? I'm going to finish the work that you need to enter rest. I'm going to do the work so that you can rest. So Jesus' work, as he declared that it is finished, then Jesus rested. What do you do when you rest? Well, you sit down. Jesus rested in Hebrews 10, 12. This man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. When Jesus finished his work on the cross, was buried, rose from the dead, revealed himself to the disciples for 40 days, then ascended into heaven, then he sat down at the right hand of the Father. In the Old Testament tabernacle or the temple, there was no seat in the Holy of Holies for the priests because you see the work was never done. It was all pointing towards the one that would one day accomplish one great sacrifice, his own body, and then be able to rest. And as he rested, he could give that rest to you and I. So how do you and I enter at this rest in a New Testament sense? I say all of that to say that sometimes people will lay the Sabbath wrap on you as a Christian. Any of you know a Seventh-day Adventist? They will give you a hard time for going to church on Sunday. You, they can't give you a hard time because you're here on Saturday. You can say, hey, I'm quite Jewish, you know. Uh, but they'll give you a hard time. Or other individuals, they try to bring you back under Old Testament law. Now, there are certain sects in Christendom that do this. And... Um, but it's because people just don't know the New Testament scriptures to be able to answer intelligently, spiritually, accurately, authoritatively from what God says. Jesus came to establish a, a new kind of rest. Though we still, I would encourage you, I love the creation example of God in rest, and I try to rest one day in seven. But it's not a law. And I'm not under the law because Jesus fulfilled that law. And out of the Ten Commandments, the only, the only commandment that's not reinstituted out of the Ten, the other nine are all given in form or fashion into the New Testament. The moral law, with the exception of the Sabbath. Christians are not put under the Sabbath rules in the New Testament. Because we're entering this rest, and this is how it goes. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 really speak a lot about this, but I can only give you a couple of verses. How to enter this Jesus rest. For we who have believed in Jesus do enter that rest. And he has said, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So he connects, the writer of Hebrews, connects what we're reading in Genesis chapter 2 to this. Verse 10 in Hebrews 4. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. As soon as you believe in the finished work of Jesus, you can have rest. Because you're ceasing from your works. Because up until the point of you coming solely on the basis of faith in Jesus' finished work, you're trying to work your way to God. You're trying to do good things. Hey, did I pray enough? Did I read enough? Did I give enough? Did I help enough? Did I, did I, did I? You see, the religious person is constantly do, 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 do. The person that understands the true Christian message, the message is done, done, done. Jesus finished it. All I have to do is embrace it and believe it, and then I can rest. So I cease from my works or my own efforts. By the way, when I came to Jesus, I wasn't working hard at all to try to be accepted by God. I was working in the opposite direction, right? I was trying to destroy. I was working hard. I was going to hell fast and working hard at it. 
So when I came to faith in Jesus, it was such a paradigm shift, such a radical thing that I never worked for it. I, I, I didn't deserve it. And those who are forgiven much, love much. I was so overwhelmed that God could love somebody like me. I gave no effort to it. I just realized on that day that Jesus had died for me, that he had rose for me. And then if I put my faith in him, I would be forgiven. And I was overwhelmed with rest in my soul for the first time in my entire life at the age of 19. I'd never experienced rest, deep rest in the soul. I'd never experienced a deep peace in my relationship with God. I went through life because of the brokenness of my growing up and family and just the, the kind of chaos that surrounded my world, just waiting for the next thing to go wrong. My entire life was waiting for the next thing to go wrong. Always trying to be in a place to self-protect when it did go wrong, to survive it. And for the first time, coming to the place that I could rest in Jesus, my whole world began to open up because all this energy, all this anxiety, all of this, this agitation inside of me to be accepted by people, to be loved by people, to be viewed in different ways, to, to whatever it was, all of that energy, all of that agitation inside of my soul, now was at rest so that I could look at the world and the relationship with the Lord and other people in a whole new way. Because all of my energy was not absorbed by the busy anxiety of an agitated working soul. So the invitation is to enter into Jesus' rest by faith in him. And to have this overwhelming supernatural peace that Paul describes in Philippians is it a peace that passes all human understanding. It'll guard your heart, your emotions, and your mind, your thoughts, as you pour your heart out to the Lord in prayer. It's this kind of peace that way back in Genesis 2, when God rested, and the writer of Hebrews picks it up, and when God rested on the seventh day, you can rest when you enter into his peace and his relationship, his rest. We can fully rest because this is now the position we're in. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Once I make that exchange and enter into the rest of God through Jesus' finished work, this is the mind-blowing thing. Jesus became sin, though he had never sinned in his life for me, and then he gave me his righteousness. So I wake up every morning and go to sleep every night totally right with God by Jesus' finished work. Even though that's a positional righteousness, practically I might stumble and fall and no Christians are perfect. It doesn't mean you got it all wired. It just simply means that you're in a position that by faith you realize you are now right with God. No matter what's going on in your life, when you receive Christ, nothing can take that away. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. So you can go to bed every night in rest or peace and wake up every day filled with hope that God's going to work in your life. Not because you got it all wired or you're the, the, the best brownie scout in the room, but because of his love for you, his goodness towards you. It's a crazy thing. Once you became a father and a grandfather, when you look at your kids, every day you wake up, it doesn't matter what, a, what little twerps they were yesterday. You know, when they're fighting with each other all day long, and you're just like, ah. Every night they go to bed, I mean, your heart of love is for them. Every morning they wake up, it's just like this overflowing love. And then you have grandkids, and then it's like stupid love, right? I mean, it becomes like, it's like you lose your mind. I watched it with my own parents. They treat my grandkids, my kids, I'm like, you're not the people that raised me. Right? All I heard was no, and you're like, here's money. And then, you know, just like. And, and it's, not based, it's not based on their behavior. Their acceptance is not based upon how well they did that day. It's based on they're my child. I have a relationship with them. That's the way the Lord looks at you. It's like when you receive Him, you're, you're His son, you're His daughter. And that's never going to change. His favor is for you. 24-7, in the morning, at noon, at night, when you lost it, when you said that grumpy word in the car on the way to church tonight, right? I see you sitting cold against each other. No, I'm just teasing. I don't know anything. 
But the reality is, it doesn't push you out of his favor because it's this incredible rest and right standing with him. Now, there's some people that still want to throw a Sabbath or other things at us. So he tells us, he wants to, you to have your heart guarded that nobody judge you about these things with a, a very illuminating understanding of this thought. In Colossians 2, verse 16, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or what? Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. The Sabbath, the new moons, which was a celebration for the Jews, or the festivals, all these things, they're all shadows that pointed to Jesus. But Jesus is the substance. Now, once those shadows, once you have the substance, you're no longer following those shadows. So don't let anybody judge you because you don't observe Sabbath from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. I liken it to my wife, Tammy. When we were in high school, Tammy and I had went out when she was 15 and I was 17. I was a junior in high school. She was a freshman. And she invited me to my, my junior prom. Now, I'm not a prom guy. I'd rather go spotlighting and kill things with my friends. I'm a redneck. And so when she said, hey, let's go to this prom, I'm like, ah, oh, you got to be crazy. You got to get the foofy dress. You got to, you know, I have this old 67 Chevy pickup. It's all beat up. And <laughs> so we, we go out for this prom. And uh, then the, the end of the school year happens. I go up to Sun Valley, Idaho. I'm uh, 17, working in construction, doing concrete, pouring exposed aggregate for those who are uh, in a concrete background in Sun Valley, Idaho. And I get this letter. Now, how I, I was like, I get this letter from Tammy. Now, I'd never received a letter from a girl. I had received notes in school, but I'd never received a letter from a girl. I get this letter and I come home and my stepmom Bonnie says, hey, you got a letter. I said, from who? I don't know, it's this, this Tammy. So I open it up and it's this really sweet note from Tammy with a picture of her. And I put that picture, you know, on the nightstand and every morning I woke up, every night I went to sleep after work, I looked at this picture. I thought, man, she's cute. Now, as soon as I was done working construction that summer, I go back to school. So first day of school, I'm starting my senior year. She's starting her sophomore year. I see Tammy. You know, from the day that I saw her on that first day of school and going back, and then we began to date and get more serious until we ultimately ended up being married, which for us, that was, uh, you know, last year was 40 years from that first day. We've been married 37 years come May. But, you know, when I got back to and I saw her in person, I never looked at the picture again. Why? Because I had the real girl standing in front of me. Why would I look at the picture? And that's what Paul is telling us about Jesus. All these Old Testament pictures of the Sabbath, the rest, the law, the forced rest, um, uh, the festivals, all those things, they were all shadows of Jesus. But once Jesus has come, you don't need to be hung up in all that stuff. Because he's the one. He's the fulfillment of that, all of that. Now, having said that, there are some people in the room, and you're going to meet them out of the room in the next month or so, that think they should observe days in special ways, and they expect you to do it too. Right? And the reason is, is that when people, have you discovered that when people have strong convictions themselves, they're not content to keep it to themselves? They want to cram them down your throat as well. Like, this is what you should do on your day off. It's like, really? You got... And I'll have people at church tell me what the rigid list of what they do on their day off. And they look at me like, do you do the same thing? And I just smile and say, well, God bless you with your list of stuff you're doing. That seems like a whole lot of work you're doing there on just observing your list. Paul knows that's going to happen. So in Romans chapter 14, it's all about 14 and 15 in Romans, is about Christian maturity and Christian liberty and freedom. So he says this, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. Now you might be a person that, you know, certain days are just, whoo, very important. And you approach them in a certain way, very methodically. Now, the whole family knows this is the way you approach it. This is your tradition. Tradition! And, and woe unto the person that messes with your tradition and your words, or your, 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 your days. But Paul says, you know what? Uh, 
it's okay. You want to esteem that day that way? You do it, be fully convinced? You observe it to the Lord. But for me personally, every day is the same. Every day I want to love God. Every day I want to serve God. Every day I want to follow God. One day is not above another. That, you know, it's just like every day is the same to me. And so I, I personally don't get hung up with that, but I have friends, and I, sometimes I admire the traditions that they build into their life and the, you know, their weekly rhythms and mechanisms that we, I always do this on this day and this way. I'm like, great, that's amazing. But if I choose not to, I'm not under the cloud of your judgment, or I won't let myself be under the cloud of your judgment if you, if you want to behave that way. So don't let anybody judge you about the words. If you've entered into the rest of Jesus, you've entered into this beautiful place. Now, having said all of that, if the Jews worshipped or observed Sabbath, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, why do the Christians observe Sunday? When did that transition happen? And why did it happen? Because this is the conundrum that trips people up. So I'd like this message to be a resource for you. You can send it to your friend because in two months, somebody's going to hit you up with this and you're like, here, just listen to this message. <laughs> you won't have to waste a year of your time trying to talk to them about this issue. So just walking through it, why on Sunday? Because you see, Sunday is the first day of the week, but it's not day one in this, the, the order of creation. We had the six days of work, seventh day of rest, and it's the eighth day. The number eight is the day of new beginnings. And Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday morning. And because Jesus rose from the dead, there was a transition that slowly happened into now Judeo-Christianity to where we observe this is called the Lord's Day. Why do we do this? Because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday for those who are going to come to church. You see, we have something for everybody. Tomorrow, it's the Gentile Christians. Today, it's you Jewish Christians. You know, Saturday, whatever. We've got a little something for everybody. But the first Sunday service in Jerusalem was at the tomb on the first day of the week, so Monday. Uh, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, and the tomb was empty. On the second Sunday service in Jerusalem, it was Sunday evening that same day, but later in the evening. Now, uh, the same day at evening being the first day of the week, Jesus uh, uh, came into the room. All the disciples were there, except Thomas was not there. And uh, so he ministered to them. They thought he was a ghost, and he said, I'm not a ghost. Give me a piece of broiled fish and honeycomb. And so he ate it so he could show them that he was not a ghost. The third Sunday service was eight days from there, counting that Sunday, because the Lord's establishing a, uh, a rhythm. Sunday morning, he rose from the dead. Sunday evening, he met with the disciples. A week later, he comes again. And uh, uh, because when they told Thomas he had come the first time and came into the room, he said, I'm not going to believe until I put my fingers in the hole in his hand and my hand in his side. So the third Sunday service was eight days later on a Sunday. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas showed up, and Jesus and him had a little conversation. He's like, here you go, Thomas. You want to put your finger right there? Is that good? You want to put your hand right here? And he falls down, and he, calls, he says, my Lord and my God. Well, the fourth Sunday service we see in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. And that is, uh, on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul spoke to them until midnight. And that was in Troas. You see the establishment. They came together to break bread one day a week. They had a church service. They're going to have a meal together, a potluck. They're going to have communion together. The fourth Sunday service. The fifth Sunday service we find in uh, Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay aside, lay something aside, soaring up as he may prosper, no collections when I come. He said, hey, I want you to give your offering. Why do we receive an offering? We have offering boxes. So on this first day of the week, tomorrow, people will be putting money in the offering box. And also those who come on a Saturday night or other services through the week. But it becomes a habit. Why do churches receive an offering on Sunday mornings? Because it was given as a pattern uh, on the first day of the week at a church service in Corinth through Paul the Apostle's instruction. The sixth Sunday service is uh, for exiled Apostle John on the island of Patmos in Revelation 1.10. It says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. What day is that? That day is resurrection Sunday morning. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Now, when we talk about 
the transition of experiencing rest, coming into a relationship with Jesus, and then transitioning that Sabbath day of Saturday into a Sunday, all of that is to go through this life offering people the rest that God has for them through a relationship with Jesus. That's why we share the good news. God loves you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, rose from the dead. Through faith in him, you can have everlasting life. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But you can also reject this rest, right? You can reject this offer. You don't have to receive it. You don't have to believe it. You don't even have to want it. You can run from it as hard as you want. In a dialogue, as the Lord's talking to the children of Israel in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 18 and 22, it says, Oh, that you had heeded my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. The Lord offers you his rest. He offers the way to have that. He said, man, your peace would be like an overflowing river. It would be like waves of righteousness in your life through a relationship with me. But you didn't want it. So he says, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. There is no peace. There's no peace for the wicked. Because you see, if I don't have a place to take my burdens, to take my anxiety, to take my fears, to take my, take my anger, to take my, uh, my envy, my jealousy, my lust, all the things that boil around inside of me, if I have no place to bring those to get help, then I'm stuck with them. But when I have the Lord and I can bring all those burdens to him, I can bring all my cares and frustrations to him, but if I'm out there in the world, where do I go with it? Well, I'll try to, you know, when you're, you're hurting inside, you, you try to drown that out. I'm either going to, I'm going to do it with self-medication. I'm going to, you know, drink myself into a peaceful state, <laughs> passed out each night. I'm going to take the, you know, give me whatever kind of uh, <laughs> drug so I can just woo, cruise through life. Sometimes we just run from it. We stay so busy because for me, that's the way I, I dealt with my anxiety growing up is that I just never wanted to be alone with my own thoughts. You know what that feels like? You get up in the morning, you just want to get busy, turn on something and get with some people so you don't have to listen to your own head. Because as soon as you have time to listen to your own head, you start talking to yourself. Like, isn't there more to light than this? Is this it? Is this all we got? Right? Is this all there is? There's a dynamic that people are stuck with. It's interesting that people want nothing to do with God, but they want all the benefits that go with knowing God. The biggest heathen, I'll ask them, hey, do you believe in heaven and hell? They go, well, I, yeah, I, I do. Well, where do you want to go? Well, obviously, I want to go to heaven simply because the alternative is not very good. Well, do you want to do anything about that? You want to have a relationship with Jesus? Do you want to? No, I don't want any of that. But I want the benefit. <laughs> I want the benefit. Of having a, I want the peace of God. I want the blessing of God without any of the moral constraints. And it doesn't work that way. Jesus comes to bring his lordship, his peace to our hearts and our souls. Well, these last three verses as we wrap up this chapter that brings our message to a conclusion. The history of this universe is so important for us to understand these biblical distinctions that transform chaos into beauty. Verse 4, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made that earth and the heavens before any plant of the field was in the earth, before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. And there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. In this new creation, he says, this is the history of the heavens and the earth. And the things that we learn from the book of Genesis, the history of the heavens and the earth, are all these great distinctions that we see our culture. What's going on in our cultural war out here is destroying all biblical distinctions. That's what they want to do. They want to destroy those distinctions. Think about these distinctions, that the, the things that it distinguishes between God and creation. God is not his creation. He created, and there's a natural world, but they're separate. The old pagan world said, you know, the sun god, the moon god, those who are pantheists. I was witnessing in Santa Cruz one time on the streets, and I'm sharing with this guy. He's sitting here, and uh, he seems somewhat sedate and rather safe. You know, when you're ministering to you guys on the street, you never know what you're going to have if you need to run for your life or what's going to go on. 
Anyway, so I, I start sharing with him about the Lord and about Jesus, and he jumps up in an exuberant way, and he goes, yes, I believe in God. God's in this rock, and God's in this tree, and he, he goes through. Like, so he had embraced pantheism, and so he was telling me with great exuberance about his God that was within uh, nature itself. No, God, God is separate from that. He created nature, but he's not in the tree. He's not in the rock, but he is obviously, his presence is here. The distinction between darkness and light, whether it's actual darkness and light or good and evil, those distinctions. Between God and man, man is not God and he cannot become God. God and his creation are separate. Man and creation are separate. I am different. You are different. Men and women are different than the created world, that God, we are the only part of creation that was created in God's image. We are image bearers of God, that he gave us authority and dominion to rule over planet Earth as good stewards. So when the people tell us, like Dennis Prager said, he came up with this question that is so telling about a person's mentality. He said, if you have a dog, it's your pet. It's your best friend. And there's a stranger. And, and if a stranger's drowned in the pond and your dog gets away from you and jumps out there also, and your dog and the stranger, the human, are drowning, which one do you save? He said 15, 20 years ago, every single person would say the human. Now people say their dog. It's a slow transition that the value of a dog, though I know you love Fido, don't get me wrong. I know you love your dog and you love your cat. I have people give big tears and say, Pastor, is my dog going to heaven? I don't know. I actually do know, but I don't want to crush your heart. Anyway, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says the spirit of man goes upward. The spirit of animals goes downward. Seems we're an eternal creature. They are not. It's the only verse that refers to it. There are animals in heaven, supernatural animals, heavenly creatures, horses, various things. So the reality is, is that humanity's value, that's why these people that have lost biblical distinctions, they think if you squish a fly or a human dies, they have equal value because they think we're all just part of this hodgepodge with no distinction. No, the Lord says, if you kill a person, if you murder a person, your life should be taken through capital punishment because you shed somebody's blood. It's a whole different distinction. So if humans should, I mean, if it's a, it's a push comes to shove between a human having a benefit from the natural resources or the animal kingdom in this world of climate change hysteria, because it's really people are just turning back to nature worship. They're turning back to worshiping. It's not, it's not, uh, it's anti-human. The whole climate change thing is anti-human. It, it's, I want to take away your, your ability to prosper through machinery and petroleum products that even gives us the ability to live the kind of lifestyle we have and to put us back into the dark ages because the, the, the planet is more important than you. But the Lord gave us dominion. We need to be wise stewards, and we need to use our resources wisely. There's also this, this difference between man and woman. I don't know if you've heard about this thing called gender dysphoria. Is it a new thing on your radar, right? So male and female, the Lord created them in Genesis chapter 1. We look next Sunday, or next Saturday, excuse me, as we look at uh, a man and a woman coming together in that first marriage. There is something beautiful in both genders, in the masculinity of a man and the femininity of a woman. Women are absolutely superior at being a woman from a man, right? They're totally superior. They pull it off really well. I dressed in a cheerleading outfit at the age of 16 for a Halloween party, and I was not a cute chick. Right? My features are way too, too, too masculine. <laughs> but this distinction now is blurred so that to celebrate, you know, uh, uh, this week, a, an award for women, President Biden and Jill Biden gave the award to a trans woman. And I'm like, 
why don't the feminists say something? Why don't, why don't they defend? How in the world is this? I mean, can you see me playing female sports at, at 6'2", 215 pounds, and saying, you know, I mean, I don't care what lipstick you put on me. There's going to be a physical advantage in the dynamic. And for people to ignore that, they're absolutely disconnected from truth and reality. It's delusional. It's absolutely delusional. Because the thing is, the people that go through the entire transition, their, their suicide rates are like 43% at the 7 to 10 year mark because after they tried the puberty blockers and they go, oh, that might help. And then they have the double mastectomy and oh, now they have the genitalia, you know, cut off or, you know, revamped, whatever. And, and then they get to the end, they go, oh, this is all, this is all a joke because nothing works. It can't work. You, 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 a man cannot make what God created. But now I'm a weirdo because I believe that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. In what world in the last 6,000 years would I not be considered the same person rather than the homophobe, transphobe, you know, all the phobes? And I find even in the church it begins to creep in when this happens. Somebody in your family that you really love begins to go down that road. My brother was old school trans, 53 years of age, wore his makeup, wore his hair like a woman, in the homosexual lifestyle. And I love my brother. We, we had uh, fiery conversations <laughs> for 30 years. But at the end, I mean, he, he died of AIDS. But six months before he died in his sleep, because my brother was kind of a you know, strong, raw bone type of guy, about 175 pounds, but, you know, HIV, he, just, he shriveled down to like 128 pounds where his neck is just, he's just like a skeleton. He literally looked, because all his teeth were gone too, if he didn't have his false teeth in. At 53, he looked like he was an 80-year-old man. But, but six months before he passed away, he said, you know, all this stuff I believed my whole life. I was born this way, I was this or that. You see, he committed his life to Jesus in that last six months. Got right with God. Had this, he had this, incredible peace from God. He had entered into God's rest. He had entered into God's rest and he had this incredible peace that he had been trying to drown his struggles in addiction from my mom's pharmaceutical stuff. He started popping Valium when he was 10 years old because my mom went through a nervous breakdown. From 10 on, he was a pharmaceutical drug addict. Got HIV from shooting heroin. He was a heroin addict. And it wasn't until he surrendered his life to Jesus as an emaciated 128-pound man that looked like he was 80 years old, and he came to Jesus and he said, I have peace. And he knew because all the conversations, he knew how much I loved him and my brother Scotty loved him also. And we had tried to bring him into that place. You know, you can, you can have this fresh life in Jesus, Randy. When he discovered he had AIDS in 1987, May, we went down there. He was drinking a, a fifth of vodka a day trying to drink himself to death because he just got the, you know, the diagnosis. We just told him about God's love and we love you. God loves you. Don't do this. Don't kill yourself. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how God, God might be able to heal you. You don't know, Randy. But I find that most people are not so extreme on that scale. But if you don't have the rest and peace of Jesus, you're just as miserable deep down inside. You just manage it really well. You manage it really well. You want to be able to go to sleep tonight just totally in the Sabbath rest of the love and the finished work of Jesus for you. And to have the distinction that you're a fallen sinner and he's a holy God, but he bridged the gap through his sacrifice for you. And now you can enjoy his righteousness and his peace forever. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that right now, I know that there are those who are just bunched up inside, Lord. 
either because of guilt and shame and sin, fear, anxiety, worries, loneliness, whatever it is, Lord. I pray that you would quiet the noise, Lord, in their head and their hearts right now. And they could just surrender to you. And I pray that your peace would come like a river to their souls, that your, your righteousness would come like waves just washing over them. If you want to invite that, that deep rest of the Lord Jesus into your heart, by faith, just, just pray with me right now. Just in the quietness of your own seat. Nobody else around you has to know what's going on, but you and the Lord do. Pray with me now. Lord Jesus, I need your rest. I need your peace. I bring you my brokenness, my guilt, my shame, my fears, my anxious heart. I ask that you would wash over me with your supernatural peace. Lord, I tried to work it out on my own. I've tried to strive to somehow quiet the noise in my head. But tonight, I stopped striving. I stop working and I simply believe and receive your supernatural rest by faith. Thank you for loving me, Lord. Thank you for meeting me here tonight. May you pour out your peace like a river as I walk with you this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.